Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. On this episode of Mortification of Spin, we'll be participating in the second half of the panel discussion at Westminster Theological Seminary's Preaching Conference. David, is it, is it possible to make a bad preacher a good preacher? I hope so, or I'm dead in the water. <laughs> so, so my, my what question, kind of question my, is that? My, my question is, <laughs> David, are you just superfluous in the body of Christ? If you could go with that. No. He's trying uh, to get me some help. I think that's what he's talking about. I have a friend, I have a question for my friend here. No, but uh, clearly preaching can be and should be taught. Non-preachers yeah. can be trained to be preachers. I Absolutely. So, but can, can, a, can a bad preacher be taught to be a good preacher it doesn't matter to me whether he ever becomes a good preacher or it doesn't matter to me whether she ever becomes a really good bible teacher what matters to me is that they make progress in their ability to preach or teach that's the apostolic dictum paul says to timothy that concerning his word gifts that he's supposed to immerse himself in them, practice them so that all may see what see that you're a good preacher no see that you got it right no he doesn't care if you got it right See that you make progress. That's, that's the apostolic control on all of us who are handling the word. The one category you don't want to be in, you do not want to be unconsciously incompetent. <laughs> that's Because then one. you don't know what you don't know. David, could you say that again and make sure Carl's making <laughs> eye contact? Speak up a little louder. <laughs> <laughs> So I've spent the better part of 30, 33 years now trying to teach the Bible regularly, trying to move between conscious incompetence and conscious competence. And I'm quite happy to live there. But that's what your people need to see. Paul wanted Timothy's congregations to know, wow, if you go to Timothy's church, he's actually a little better this year than he was a year ago. That's what the apostle wants. So don't, don't think you're supposed to be a good preacher. That connects nicely. <laughs> Amen. Connects nicely to this next question. Uh, what role has your wife and children played in helping you preach and mature as a preacher? <laughs> Are you all looking at me again on that yeah. one? <laughs> Let me tell you so about, I'll give you a word about my wife. My wife, Lisa, we've been married 32 years. We've, uh, we've been married 32 years, uh, and we have five children. We knew each other when she was not, uh, eight years old or nine years old. We grew up on the same block. Um, my wife, I don't know how to speak of life uh, without my wife, let alone uh, ministry. So she has graciously, faithfully, beautifully been a strong and godly woman who together we've raised our family. She works full-time. She has a job. She's about 55 hours a week. She's beautifully sustaining our home in different ways. I can't imagine doing anything without my wife in regard to ministry. And the other thing is she keeps me honest. There's very few people I'm going to listen to. I'm a little, you know, south side of Chicago. We think what we think, and we're not going to listen to you. But, but the real deal is when my wife looks me in the eye and says, you know, you 
you're out of line there. Did you really think that? Did you really say that? Did you really do that? She holds my feet to godly, growth and godliness. So uh, I, I praise God. I'd, I'd be dead in the water without her. I remember a comment when I was starting off as, uh, on the scholarly track as an academic. Richard Muller, good friend of mine at Calvin Seminary, told me to, to choose four or five, three, four or five uh, academics that I knew and truly respected and to trust their judgment on my academic work and to disregard the judgment that anybody else made on it, whether it was positive or negative. Have the four or five people that you trust to assess your work for you. And I think that's not a bad principle with preaching. John Chrysostom has a great passage in his book on the priesthood when he says, you know, people come up and criticize your sermons. You know, they're idiots, most of them. They don't know what they're talking about. But he's not meaning that no sermon should be criticized there. I think what he's pointing to is that you need to know the people who are competent to critique your sermons and will do it honestly. And I'd put my wife in that category. When I get in the car on a Sunday after preaching, the first thing I say to her is, how was the sermon? And then she runs through what she thinks was good and what could have been done better. And the great thing is when criticism like that comes from your wife, it doesn't hurt because you know your wife loves you. Or you hope she loves you anyway. Um, I'm thinking particularly of Todd here. But uh, uh, I, I think criticism from a wife about preaching is very helpful because it's not designed to hurt. You know that it really is designed to make you better. I would add to that, I think that I've known one or two pastors whose wives believe their husband's propaganda and it was lethal to them I think that they never got better because their wives didn't think they could get any better and that's a really big problem I think yeah and we've talked about this before My, my wife likes me but she's not my fan and so she doesn't have a good poker face and so if, you know, if I'm up there and I've been a, a horse's rear end, can you say horse's rear end, Westminster? You just did. Okay. <laughs> if, if, you know, if, if, if I've been a jerk and I say something from the pulpit, she's not going to be down there going, oh, he's so clever. You know, anything like that. You know, I mean, she keeps me honest. I have to, before I get up and preach, if there's something wrong, I have to make that right. And, and so she's, she in that way keeps me from being too self-deceived because she's not my fan. She's not impressed with me. She doesn't, you know, go around and talk about the books I've written or anything like that, the way Katrina does for you. But, uh, is there a professor of pastoral counseling out there? (laughs) (laughs) All of Todd's inferiority complexes are coming out. What I'm trying to say is that my wife doesn't care for me that much. And, um, (laughs) well, you married up is what you said. She's a woman of great taste, actually. Yeah. 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 I did want to add something to that. Um, just, I think a wife can be very helpful, and, and other women in your congregation can be very helpful. You know, I was talking to a pastor who said he had realized five years into his ministry with his church that he wasn't preaching to the women. So he didn't ever think about the fact that he's not connecting with the women in his congregation before. So he actually invited me to come speak to his class at RTS on preaching about the topic of preaching to women. And one thing that I think my pastor does really well is every now and then you just get a question from him. You know he's working on a sermon. And what do you think about, and, and he just talks to us and asks us questions. We're on his mind, and he listens to the women in his congregation because he's preaching to them as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think wives can really serve in that way, yeah. too, for their husbands. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Who Take goes a note next? on that good advice I just gave yeah, you, Yeah, that's what I was doing. Is that what you're doing there? 
I didn't know I had women in my congregation. That's a, that's a, I that's have women in the congregation. We try to discourage that sort of thing in the OPC, by and large. Uh, let, 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 me, let, me ask, let me ask this one. In the document, Preaching at Westminster, please elaborate with details, it says, as to how ministerial formation of the students, A, takes place in curriculum and student life, and B, is measured by the faculty? That's really a question for Tim Whitmer, but I'll do my best not to, uh, to embarrass the institution in my answer to it. I think that uh, one thing, I can only speak for myself, I can't speak for colleagues on faculty. One thing I've done in church history is try to include in each of the three courses I teach some text uh, that connects directly to pastoral ministry. So, for example, in the ancient church course, I get students to read passages from, if not the whole thing, John Chrysostom's On the Priesthood, which I think is a very good early pastoral uh, text. In Reformation, uh, I get them to read Martin Butzer's On the True Care and Concern of Souls. So there would be two texts that I would use to try to bring out a, a pastoral dimension to what's going on. And also in the way I teach each course. I try to focus on the fact, particularly it's much easier to do this in a pre-modern setting, focus on the fact that theology was the task of the church up until the Enlightenment, really, up until really early 19th century. Theology was done within the context of the church and church institutions. So I try to focus on the, the underlying pastoral, I don't want to use the word practical because that's not quite right, but the, the underlying formative thing. So, for example, when I teach the doctrine of the Trinity, I, f- I start by emphasizing the questions about the Trinity arise from very simple and practical questions that every Christian has to face. What do you mean when you praise Jesus, when you say Jesus is Lord in praise? What do you mean when you baptize in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit? So I try to make the church history that I teach specifically focused upon, for want of a better word, how it's shaped and how it shapes Christian discipleship. How we measure it, I'm inclined, at this point I am inclined to play the the OPC card without irony and say, I don't think that's the job of the seminary. I think that's the job of the church. It's the church where spiritual formation primarily takes place. At the seminary, ultimately, we assess technical skills. Do you know your languages? Do you know your history? Do you know your theology? I think it is the job of the church to assess discipleship broadly considered. So I'm inclined to say, as far as measuring this, that's not my job. That's the job of the pastors and the elders at the churches where you are members and where you are under their care and where they have spiritual authority over you. I have no spiritual authority over you in any capacity, if you're merely attending my classes at Westminster, I have spiritual care authority, ministerial authority, concern for you, if you're a member of my church. And that's where I would do the, I don't like this term, you know, assessing discipleship or spirituality, but that's where spiritual formation takes place. So this may sound like a cop-out, but I'm saying it's not when I have my professorial hat on that I'm primarily concerned with the spiritual formation of those in my class. It's when I have my pastoral hat on uh, in my church. Okay. Michael Hakin hates that answer. And oh. When I go to Southern Seminary, he always picks me up on that because he does believe that seminaries have a, a more significant role in spiritual formation than, than I'm prepared to allow, I guess. Baptists. <laughs> Am I right? 
No. <laughs> Michael's a good man. Come on. <laughs> okay, well, I have a question from the audience. What are steps you suggest a student take to become a better preacher, especially if we don't have any preaching opportunities at church? Find them outside of church. Preachers are going to preach. So that's one question I would ask. If no opportunities are ever there, you got to ask yourself, is that a gift that I'm actually supposed to be nourishing? Some men, some women are gifted to teach for the welfare of the church. Not every man or every woman has a ministry of the word in general or particular ways. If there are no opportunities, all I can tell you is the people that preach and teach, they find opportunities. They make opportunities. Opportunities come to them. So maybe I don't want to be hard on the questioner because I don't know the situation. But um, Liam Gallagher was sharing with us today that you know his first preaching, I think, was repeating a Billy Graham sermon to his brother in the top bunk. There you go. <laughs> I mean, right. In a North Carolina accent, yeah. he told as well. So. Preachers are going to preach. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. there's some element to that, but I, I don't know how to press it any further. I'd have to know the individual asking the question better to be pastorally aware of what that question. I was going to say, I, I'd agree with that. I remember the comments that my, my old friend, uh, Mike Kelly, who was on faculty here, said about his time as a student that he couldn't find opportunities in a church to preach. So he called around local extended care facilities and went and, and preached uh, on a Sunday afternoon, did little services for the people in the care facilities. I would also add that one other way, and I think this is neglected, if you want to speak well, then read well. I think the more good prose you read, the better you will speak. If the word like vanished from the English language, most people under the age of 35 would only need to speak for a third of the length they do. People do not speak well today. And one of the ways to help yourself speak better is to read better. Don't read garbage. Read good prose. Read well-written novels. Read quality newspapers. If you read good English, it will bleed into your system and you will be able to speak better English as a result thereof. Read like, oh, sorry. <laughs> totally and stuff, yes. Is the, uh... Uh, David, we, we've talked about this on Mortification of Spin recently, but um, is there a place for topical series? Now, I'm not talking about non-exposition. Every sermon should be an exposition of a particular text, but is there a place, along with doing series through books of the Bible, to hit on a, a topical series as well, to include that in your preaching? It's a really good question. I'm sure we should have some bandwidth on the answer, some elasticity. So I'm only referring to my own approach on it. Every sermon should have a topic, right? I mean, every passage of the scriptures. So every sermon has a big idea. Every sermon has something it's trying to convey by way of emphasis. All preaching in that sense, then, is topical preaching. But I understand the question, too. Do you break from exposition to do topics. I, I guess my own thing would be when you're asked to do a topical series to a youth group on a retreat and you know you're supposed to do love, sex, and dating, the longer you're teaching the Bible, the better chance you'll have of choosing texts that aren't violating the meaning within its context. So younger preachers especially should be trying to work their way sequentially through books because they'll be able to handle the material better when you're asked to do a topical message. you got a better shot than the inexperienced person 
on handling the word well. But if you look at my practice, 19 years at Holy Trinity Church, have we ever broken for a topical series? No. I never, I, well, I broke on 9-11. On 9-11, I preached John 3.16. Other than that, we're working through texts. I found myself in the middle of the summer, in the midst of all the racial tension in my city, five minutes from my house, where we've had three young African-Americans die that are students of my teachers or grandchildren of my parents in my congregation. When we're burying people, whose mothers don't have money to bury them. Everything is screaming in me to do a series on race and justice. And I was in the middle of Exodus 20 through 20, 31. And I was at Exodus 21, where it talks about how the Hebrews are supposed to handle their slaves and their women. And I thought, Lord, you have given me the worst text given the one topic that has to be addressed in my city. And I worked my way through the text, and it was a, a gift of God for us. So the Word of God will meet the needs of the people of God, and I break for topics, well, evidently, once every 20 years. <laughs> well, you're predictable, at least, in that way. Do you, how do you decide, okay, this is the book we're going to go through next. Do you have a, a, a typical process you go through, or how do you make those decisions? Um, seasonally, I've done it different ways. I'm sure we, we all do it different ways. So when I first started at the University of Chicago neighborhood, I had a three-year plan to expose people to various aspects of the scriptures, and we probably did that for about six years, so that if you were in our congregation over a two-and-a-half-year period, you would have been exposed to various areas of the scripture. The longer I've been there, the less that has held me. Generally, I go from Old Testament to New Testament, try to not get too far away from a gospel every three, three-and-a-half years. I don't close my eyes, stare at the ceiling, and subjectively determine what my people need. And as a result, I've preached through most of the Bible or books of the Bible in the 19 years. There are a few that I haven't preached through, so now that's probably driving me. What have we not done? But it's not out of any great sense that I haven't preached the full counsel of God. It's just stuff I haven't gotten to yet. But I think that'll change for you depending upon where you're at, how long you've been there, what you think you're trying to accomplish. But right now, we're really wrestling with what's next for us in January, and we're praying about it, and we talk about it, and then the staff will decide what to do. I don't know that it'll be right or wrong. It just will be what it is. Here's a question uh, for David and Todd. It's, I'm, I'm playing off, but it's not precisely the question. It's around, but I'm playing off it. How do you not get discouraged when you prepared well, you prayed well, you've committed your heart to your people, as you mentioned, and it just doesn't make any difference? Week in, week out. And, for example, let's say you know there's somebody in your congregation and, you know, the domestic situation is very, very bad. And the one spouse is treating the other spouse very badly. And they're hearing the word preached week after week, and they're just not connecting it to themselves. How do you, two, two parts of this question, how do you not get discouraged? And how do you, is there anything you can do to make the word connect? Or is it just down to the hardness of the heart of the person you're preaching to? So I can honestly say that I don't get discouraged by that because I'm confident that the word is going to produce fruit and some will be under the preaching of the word of God and 
and it will work towards their sanctification. For others, perhaps their hearts will be hardened, but God's at work regardless. And I would be, I think, it would be really hard for me to get up and preach each Sunday if I, if I thought, if, if I was worried about that. But I'm just not, I'm worried about all kinds of things. But by God's grace, I'm not, I'm not worried about that. God's going to, to use his word his way. And, and I see enough fruit in various people's lives to be encouraged by that regularly. We, I regularly hear from people who are receiving the word with joy each week, and, and that's a source of, of great comfort. So th- this may be a temperamental thing or an experiential thing rather than a, a spiritual or right thing. I get very discouraged by um, the weight that people are carrying, the strain that relationships are under, the lack of transformational change, even though I give myself to the exposition of the word. I think it's beginning to make me feel a heightened degree of calling out to God that his Holy Spirit would begin to enliven and quicken and change things that need to be changing. I do believe the greatest need in the church today is for the fresh and ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit, which ought to make me a person of intercessory prayer and an expositor of preaching. So I think we need to we need to call ourselves to greater holiness within our own life. I often wonder sometimes, are my people struggling because I'm not growing enough? I want to keep progressing in godliness. Sometimes I can overanalyze the health of the church is dependent upon the health of the leadership. I don't know how to f- formulate all those things, but I am deeply desirous of a greater transformational change in marriages, in lives, in life, in coming off of addictions, in the wrestlings of, of, of life. And I wish there was a lot more change this side of heaven than we see. Yeah. Sorry, that kind of tanked the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess we'll be. I guess we'll be wrapping up now. Drink or anything like that. Um, no, uh, uh, Go home in despair. I I certainly agree with you as far as being burdened with the burdens of the people that that I'm called to care for. No doubt, that's a daily burden. And each week, getting up to preach and seeing, you know, there's a couple. They're seated next to each other, but they're on the verge of divorce. He just told her, so yeah, this past Sunday, okay, I know that that couple are sitting next to each other, even though he just told her on Wednesday he's leaving the marriage. He just has now been diagnosed for the third time with a brain tumor. She just miscarried two weeks ago. So the usher that comes down this aisle every week just told me before the service started that his son announced to him and his wife that he's homosexual. So that's one Sunday. So those burdens are there, and they are, they are very real. I'm not preoccupied with, with whether or not there will be fruit come from the ministry of the Word. I, I do get to see that also. But, um, but yeah, every, every Sunday, knowing what's present in the congregation, if I'm going to say anything about God's sovereignty, about comfort in times of, of suffering, 
um, knowing those stories that are before me brings a weight and a heavy sense of responsibility before I let anything come out of my mouth that might be trite because they'll smell it out and I'll feel like an idiot anyway saying something stupid when I know so much of what's going on in the congregation. Maybe I can ask a version of that question to Amy. How do you prepare for hearing the word of God so Mm. it will bear fruit? Mm. Well, if I can borrow your Bible. Absolutely. (laughs) And go to Hebrews. One of my favorite verses is Hebrews 12, 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, understatement. But later... Afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so I see a promise there that, you know, there's times in your life where you know you've sinned, the gig is up, and you're paying the consequences for that. You get that. But then there's so many afflictions in our lifetime that we don't know why God is allowing it in our lives. And whether it's, you know, preaching the word and not seeing the fruit or, um, the personal struggles that a lay person is going through in the pew, that afterward there in verse 11 shows that all of us are going to go through that, every single one of us. So what does that reveal? Well, there's a promise that it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. But then there's this kind of warning at the end there still, you know, Hebrews loves to throw in the pepper, the warnings to those who have been trained by it. So I really think about that when I'm sitting under the word and going through a hard time and when I am feeling that despair, that God promises that he's using this right now. I mean, Jesus right now at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf, interceding on the behalf of the preacher who's preaching his word and the lay people sitting in the pews or the comfortable chairs and that he will produce this righteousness, but that we have to be trained by it too and so that we do need to hold fast to our confession of hope without wavering. This person had a, a question. It would probably be a good one to begin to wrap up with because I think it, I think it gets to the heart of what, of what probably all of us, I mean, I don't know David enough well, so we'll have to find out, but, but certainly this gets to the heart of what, of what we're about. And it's this, Amy, what kind of cigar do you smoke when you're with us? Exactly. Ooh. I just prefer bourbon. Okay. <laughs> she actually has one of those hats with headgear that have the straws that come down. But um, D- David, do you have a personal preference? Can we get you a, a cigar, or or are you more sanctified than that? The only way into heaven. Well, it's only open to those who have a few vices. Isn't that correct? I mean, forgiveness is needed, but there are vices that must be repented of. Uh, I'll smoke. Uh, anything, Honduran, <laughs> Nicaraguan, okay. Cuban, in a celebratory way, but that's also a personal weakness. But if you put some in front of me, it's going up to the glory of God. <laughs> <laughs> well, Todd's our, our, our main pipe smoker. Uh, he loves to... David, you have good elders, don't you? I think it was the Erskines who wrote a hymn based around pipe smoking. And when they use the image of the smoke rising up, it's like the prayers of the saints uh, ascending to God in heaven. It's somewhere on the internet if you look for it. exactly what it's like. Sam Renahan's website, I think I saw that. Well, we'd like to thank David for joining us on the panel today, and we hope the discussion's been instructive. 
Thanks for joining us this afternoon. A man named J.L. went, to, uh, went into the cheese business in Chicago. He failed and went bankrupt. Hey, sir, what you talking over here? Hey, what you talking? I'm talking to you, sir. Thank you. God bless you. I'm preaching. He went into the cheese business. He failed. He went bankrupt. You're probably the guy that needs to be at the altar tonight. Hope God you're not a Hiles Anderson student. I hope if you're going to be a preacher, everybody in the audience talks while you preach. You reap, you'll reap what you sow. Still up. Amen. Thanks for listening to the second half of the discussion. We hope it's been beneficial to you. Please remember we are donor-supported and all financial gifts are appreciated. Please visit the website mortificationofspin.org to make a donation. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... We're missing. We're missing one of... One of our team, he is reflecting quietly. You know, Todd and I thought, well, that's a good topic to talk about, really, is is the whole idea of our quiet times. Yes, yes. So the question I have is, and, and what's often connected to this, is what does it take, really, uh, to be godly? You know, if you didn't have your quiet time today, you left God waiting in your room. You left him all alone. That interview is next time. Join us then. I'm glad he's here. <laughs> <laughs>